0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 74. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on Memorial Day, May 30th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that is off the timeline of the History of the Americans, really my way of signaling that the episode need not be listened to in sequence. Apart from the company of a couple of old dogs, I've been home alone this Memorial Day weekend on account of the misses having great fun with a girlfriend in New Orleans. And that has given me the time to read old presidential speeches. I like old presidential speeches, especially obscure ones. Everyone's read the Gettysburg Address 50 times, because they reflect the audience and sensibilities of their day. Presidents are obviously politicians, acutely attuned to their audience, hoping both to say what voters want to hear and to persuade them to their side. Well, on Saturday, May 30th, precisely 91 years ago today and two and a half years into the catastrophic Great Depression... Herbert Hoover gave a speech on the Saturday following Memorial Day under a ferocious sun at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. With a little background and interjected commentary, I'm going to read it to you. Probably not quite as Hoover would have done. At the end of the speech, I'll play a clip of Herbert Hoover's voice so you can get some sense of what he might have sounded like on that day at Valley Forge. Most people today, except maybe for kids who go to school in eastern Iowa and take the inevitable field trip to the Hoover Library in West Branch, at least I hope they still do that, don't know much about Hoover as anything other than one of our worst presidents. Before becoming president, the first job at which it is generally agreed he failed, Hoover was a rags-to-riches story with few parallels in American life. Then having made a fortune by his 30s. During World War I, Hoover would invent the entire concept of international food relief and save literally millions of Belgians and other Europeans from mass starvation. There's a good argument that by the late 1920s, Hoover had saved more lives than any American before him. Before the wreckage of his presidency, Hoover was known deservedly as the Great Humanitarian. Herbert Clark Hoover was born on August 10, 1874, in West Branch, Iowa, a Quaker settlement about 10 miles east of Iowa City. He came into the world at home, in a small but immaculate cottage across an alley from his father Jesse's blacksmith shop. West Branch was well east of the frontier in 1874, but the railroad had come through only three years before. In the words of William Lichtenberg, who wrote an accessible biography of Hoover in the American President series, link on the website, West Branch was church-going, sober Republican. The sole Democrat was the village drunk. I'm a bit sympathetic with that guy, actually, because if you've been to West Branch even recently, I was there 10 years ago, And imagine it in 1874 with no car to whisk you back to Iowa City. You might actually aspire to be the village drunk. All right, all right, West Branch, just having fun with you. Cool your jets, okay? Hoover's beloved father died when he was six. His mother, Hulda, was what passes for a Quaker zealot in a town full of them and was always dumping her kids with relatives so she could travel around preaching the good word. After Jesse died at Hulda, young Bertie and his brother and sister were poor to the point of being precarious. In contrast to politicians today, Hoover almost never talked about his childhood poverty. The only time came in 1928 when an interviewer asked him why he liked food so much. Hoover told him about those days in Iowa and said, You see, I was always hungry then. In 1884, when Bertie was only 10... Hulda died. He and his brother Tad and sister May were orphans. They were passed around among relatives in the area, but the next year, at age 11, an uncle told him, thee is going to Oregon to live with Hulda's older brother John, whose own son had died recently. They put him on a westbound coach of the Union Pacific for a seven-day journey across the Great Plains and the Rockies and then by river steamer on the Willamette to Newburgh his Uncle John met him at the depot. They did not get along. He put Bertie to work on its various enterprises, a school of hard knocks, if there ever was one. Bertie did every type of task one might imagine and really didn't go to school. Still, young Herbert, Bertie, learned bookkeeping and typing before he was 14. He also developed a deep yearning to get out of there. Asked a generation later about his boyhood goal, Lichtenberg said, Hoover answered, To be able to earn my own living without the help of anybody, anywhere. He would accomplish it in spades. A chance meeting with a mining engineer changed the arc of Hoover's life. Quoting Lichtenberg, He heard that a new university, Leland Stanford, was being founded in California, and he set his cap on going there. His meager schooling nearly derailed that aspiration when he failed the entrance examination. The Stanford mathematics professor who administered the test was so impressed by his tenacity, however, that he admitted Burt conditionally. A young Quaker none too well prepared, the examiner reported, but showing remarkable keenness. A Quaker himself who would one day be president of Swarthmore, he noted that the slender, square-jawed applicant put his teeth together with great decision, and his whole face and posture showed his determination to pass the examination at any cost. He instructed Bert to arrive in California well before the university opened in order to be tutored for a second test. Herbert Hoover entered the first pioneer class of Stanford University by the skin of his teeth. Hoover worked ferociously at Stanford, mostly at terrible jobs to pay his expenses. He almost failed out his first semester, but he fell in with the chairman of the geology department who took him under his wing. He involved Hoover in making United States Geological Survey maps of the West and was generous as a mentor. Some of those maps show Herbert Hoover as an author, credit that even many professors today wouldn't extend to their undergraduate assistants. Hoover was still almost penniless. Quoting Lichtenberg again, while gaining this priceless experience, Hoover continued to live hand to mouth. When in the summer of his junior year, a survey post he was expecting did not materialize, he was reduced to driving a team of horses from Palo Alto to Yosemite, planting signs and posting advertisements for William Randolph Hearst's San Francisco Examiner. On learning that he did have a job, after all, while in the mountains near Lake Tahoe, Hoover, all but penniless, walked more than 80 miles in three days to catch a boat in Stockton for Palo Alto. No one could doubt his fortitude, however they may have regarded his forbidding personality. Back to me, Hoover was determined but at least introverted and often downright grumpy. He had a hard time making friends, though he would show early signs of political ambition by running for and winning the post of class treasurer on an anti-fraternity slate. He was an outsider candidate in an outsider moment, and by taking up the cause of opposition to the frat bros on campus, he turned his own social incompetence into political advantage. But Hoover's resentment which no doubt fueled his ambition, persisted. When his own sons would go to Stanford, he forbid them from joining a fraternity. Hoover did make one friend at Stanford. A lovely young freshman woman from Monterey named Lou Henry joined the Department of Geology. In due course, Hoover learned that she, too, had been born in Iowa, Waterloo, for those of you who are sticklers for Hawkeye State details and was fascinated by geology. In the 1890s, a man's field, if there ever was one. Hoover was smitten. Eventually, they would marry, after Hoover had made enough money to be marriageable, and she would go on to be his resolute partner through thick and thin. Now came the second big turning point in Hoover's life, again, quoting Lichtenberg. Early in 1896 in San Francisco, His fortunes took a decided turn for the better when he knocked on the door of Louis Janine, a prominent mining engineer who was an agent for the Rothschilds. Janine took him on as a copyist, little more than an office boy, but soon found Hoover's know-how valuable in litigation and in assessing New Mexico and Colorado mines. When the world-renowned London firm of Bewick Mooring & Company told Janine it was seeking an engineer, at least 35 years old, With expertise in smelting to go to Australia as a mine scout, he recommended Hoover. Much too young, only 22, the recent graduate grew a mustache, bought a top hat and a frock coat, puffed up his credentials, crossed the country by rail, this would be his first time east of the Mississippi, and sailed out of New York Harbor on a White Star liner for the Old World. On his country estate in England, Charles Algernon Mooring looked Hoover over, liked what he saw, and sent the young recruit, who gave his age as 36, by train through the Alps to the ancient Roman port of Brindisi, then on a long voyage via the Suez Canal and the Indian Ocean with stops at Port Said in Sri Lanka to the land down under. In Australia, the young Hoover would drive himself relentlessly to manage the mines he was responsible for. He squeezed more productivity out of his men, even at the price of firing them in great swaths, when he judged them incompetent or too demanding of higher pay. And he turned out to be a genius at assessing the potential of new mines. He finally made enough money to marry Lou Henry, so after three years of proving his mettle, he returned to California and they were wed. Within a week, the young couple were off to China, where they would both learn some Chinese and hunker down during the Boxer Rebellion. Luttenberg's account of that episode is priceless. Quote, in 1900, they found themselves besieged in the international settlement at Tientsin by a rabidly xenophobic order. The Boxers, 300,000 strong, massacred Chinese Christians, torched churches, murdered the German envoy and vowed to drive the foreign devils into the sea. Hoover erected barricades of grain and sugar sacks and organized distribution of rice and water to pro-Western Chinese sheltered in their compound. Meanwhile, Lou, a 38 Mauser pistol tucked under her belt, bicycled about on errands under fire, nursed the wounded, tended a dairy herd, and kept night vigils. After a harrowing 28 days, the siege was broken. I do not remember a more satisfying musical performance, Hoover later said, than the bugles of the American Marines entering the settlement playing there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Lou Henry Hoover was a top-five flotus no matter what the polls of professional historians say. Hoover rose rapidly in the world of mining. Eventually, finding himself in London as the youngest partner in one of the largest mining enterprises in the world, from that home base he would travel the world, spending years in China, Burma, Russia, and the Southern Hemisphere. All the while, feeling every bit like the American he was, out of place. By 1907, age 33, he would be a multi-millionaire. Back when a million bucks was truly serious coin. The orphan from West Branch, Iowa, and his wife from Waterloo had traveled an extraordinary distance, literally, especially, but also figuratively. Hoover then set up his own consulting firm and spent the years before World War I traveling the world and fixing troubled minds and starting new ones. But by 1914, he was beginning to look for another purpose. Making money had become too easy. And it kept him away from the United States, the only place where he felt at home. When the guns of August opened fire, he was in London. And within days of the opening shots, he organized a relief organization to get stranded American citizens out of Europe. He lent a huge amount of his own money so that his fellow Americans could get home and raise more from other wealthy American expats. Virtually all of it was repaid. The Wilson administration took notice and soon recruited him for other tasks. Hoover turned to feeding the starving people behind German lines and inside the British blockade, first in Belgium and then elsewhere in Europe, organizing an amazingly complex international logistical undertaking by writing letters and telegrams and personally confronting the senior leaders of all the major combatants through sheer force of personality and competence the warring great powers of imperial Europe to cooperate in saving civilian lives, even as they slaughtered each other's armies by the tens of thousands. That story is astonishing, and if I live so long, I will certainly get to it on this podcast. Hoover would go on to serve the Wilson administration at home and then become Secretary of Commerce under Calvin Coolidge. During which he would organize the relief of the lower Mississippi Valley during the catastrophic flooding in the summer of 1927. None of these experiences made Hoover an easier man to like. He was quick to anger, extremely direct in his speech, and largely lacking in the personality attributes that we normally regard as important for politicians. Hoover couldn't do chit-chat at parties if his life depended on it. He also walled himself off from showing the empathy that he manifestly felt for the people he was helping. It would come out later that many promising but poor young men had received anonymous financial support from Hoover, but even the recipients did not know who their benefactor was. He never wanted to meet with people he had saved from starvation or housed after a flood. There would be few, if any, such photo ops, His stalwart emotional reserve would push people away. As president, he failed utterly to show that he understood the suffering of the American people during the Depression, although surely he did. And his technocratic genius did not solve the crisis. By May 1931, Hoover was in deep political trouble. In that context, listen to the speech that Herbert Hoover gave before 20,000 onlookers at Valley Forge on May 30th, 1931. A day so hot that scores of people fainted, and yet they persisted. Over the distance of these 91 years, I was struck by both the similarities to and differences from presidential speeches that we might hear today. There are also, in the old-fashioned language, echoes of political arguments that still rage today. With that, President Herbert Hoover's Memorial Day Address. We are upon the eve of celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of George Washington. It is therefore appropriate that our observance of Memorial Day should this year be at this place, so intimately associated with the moral grandeur of the father of our country. This national shrine needs no description. The events enacted here require no recounting to the American people. The very name Valley Forge swells within us a pride of nationality. These peaceful fields hold a glory peculiarly their own. The sufferings of Washington's army in that dreadful winter of privation have made this place famous among all men. It was not the glory of battle for which these fields are remembered. No great battle was fought here. It was not the pomp of victory— for no martial triumph was won here. It was not the scene where peace was signed by which independence of a great nation was won. It was not the tombs of courageous men who, facing the enemy, gave the supreme sacrifice for their country to which we bow in reverence. A thousand other fields marked the courage, the glory, the valor, the skill, the martial triumph of our race, Yet the instinct and the judgment of our people after the abrasion of the years has appraised this place as a foremost shrine in the war of independence and in our nation. It is a shrine to the things of the spirit and of the soul. It was the transcendent fortitude and steadfastness of these men who in adversity and in suffering through the darkest hour of our history held faithful to an ideal. Here men endured that a nation may live. George Washington and his men at any moment could have accepted the counsels of an easy path to an easy end of their privations. They could have surrendered their ideals to the widespread spirit of despair and discouragement. They could have abandoned their claims to freedom. They could have deserted their hopes and forsaken their faith. Instead, they chose the harder way of steadfast fortitude and for many of death. Here Washington and his little band of hungry and almost naked patriots kept alive the spark of liberty in the lowest hours of the revolution. They met the crisis with steadfast fortitude. They conserved their strength. They husbanded their resources. They seized the opportunity, which with the turn of the tide of war led to victory. It was a triumph of character and idealism and high intelligence over the counsels of despair, of prudence, and material comfort. This was one of those moral victories that are the glory of the race. Without such victories, the life of man would descend to a sheer materialism, for where there is no vision, the people perish. Lacking these high inspirations, mankind could claim no distinction higher than the beasts of the field that sing no songs, dream no dreams, Inspire no hope, and grasp no faith. Interjecting for a second, of course, had Hoover the benefit of my octopus teacher? Surely you all saw that during the pandemic. He might have been a bit less confident in that last sentence. Back to Hoover. It is this high spirit that we commemorate when we pay our yearly tribute of reverence to those who in all wars have stood steadfast and those who have died in the service of our country. Our citizens in every war have flocked to arms at the call of country. They have responded willingly because in every emergency they have had before them an ideal of liberty and the freedom of their country. Some wars in history have been instigated by old and cynical men for cruel or selfish reasons. Some wars have been fought for power and possessions. The ends of some wars could have been more nobly won and more wisely won by patience and negotiation. But war for liberty has endowed the race not alone with the most precious possessions of freedom, but has inspired every succeeding generation with that idealism, which is the outpouring of man's spiritual nature. An ideal is an unselfish aspiration." Its purpose is the general welfare, not only of this, but of future generations. It is a thing of the spirit. It is a generous and humane desire that all men may share equally in a common good. Our ideals are the cement which binds human society. They provide the mainspring of progress. Idealism was forged into the souls of the American people by the fires of the revolution. It is this quality of spirit which has made possible the success of our great democratic experiment, that has tempered our acquisitiveness, has strengthened our sense of civic responsibility, and has made service to fellow man a part of our national character. This peculiar significance of Valley Forge in our American annals should strike us all with a special force in this particular moment of our national life. The American people are going through another Valley Forge at this time. To each and every one of us, it is an hour of unusual stress and trial. You have each one your special cause of anxiety. So too have I. The whole nation is beset with difficulties incident to a worldwide depression. These temporary reverses in the march of progress have been in part the penalty of excesses of greed, a failure of crops and the malign inheritances of the Great War and a storm of other world forces beyond our control. Their far-reaching effects have fallen heavily upon many who were in no ways concerned with their causes. Many have lost the savings of a lifetime. Many are unemployed. All know the misgivings of doubt and grave concern for the future. No one who reviews the past and realizes the vast strength of our people can doubt that this, like a score of similar experiences in our history, is a passing trial. From it will come a greater knowledge of the weaknesses of our system, and from this knowledge must come the courage and wisdom to improve and strengthen us for the future. Numerous are the temptations, under the distress of the day, to turn aside from our true national purposes— and from wise national policies and fundamental ideals of the men who built our republic. Never was the lure of the rosy path to every panacea and of easy ways to imagine security more tempting. For the energies of private initiative, of independence, and a high degree of individual freedom of our American system, we are offered an alluring substitute— And the specious claim that everybody collectively owes each of us individually a living, rather than an opportunity to earn a living. And the equally specious claim that hired representatives of a hundred million people can do better than the people themselves in thinking and planning their daily life. The revolution, of which Valley Forge was the darkest but perhaps the most glorious moment, was fought not alone for national independence, but to retain our freedom to continue unhampered the most promising social experiment in all human history. Our American ideals had already been in process of development for a century when the war for independence began. Our government was an experiment in securing to a people the maximum of individual freedom. Interjecting here, there being, of course, glaring exceptions of which Hoover was well aware but apparently disinclined to make mention of it in this speech. The Hoovers, in fact, followed in Calvin Coolidge's footsteps and opposed segregation. In 1929, First Lady Lou Henry Hoover had, with the support of the president, invited the wife of the North's first black congressman, Oscar Stanton DePriest of Chicago, to the customary White House Tea for the Wives of Incoming Freshmen. Nearly as I could find, it was the first time that a First Lady had invited an American black person to one of her social events in the White House. Southern politicians concerned about waning support for segregation in the South were outraged, and that was tough for Hoover. He'd won five Southern states. Back to Hoover. Amazing success has proved it is no longer an experiment. Under it has grown a social and economic system new in the world and distinctly our own. Human initiative has been inspired. Human energies released local cooperation has solidly knit together communities into self-governing democracies. And the human spirit has blossomed in an atmosphere of a new independence and self-respect. It brought America to a greatness unparalleled in the history of the world. We must ever continue that fight. Amid the scene of vastly growing complexity of our economic life, we must preserve the independence of the individual from the deadening restraints of government. Yet by the strong arm of government, equally protect his individual freedom, as sure as fair chance, his equality of opportunity from the encroachments of special privileges and greed or domination by any group or class. We are still fighting this war of independence, We must not be misled by the claim that the source of all wisdom is in the government. We know that the source of wisdom is in the people, that the people can win anew the victory. But that wisdom is not innate. Rather, it is born out of experience and most of all of precisely such experience as is brought to us by the darkest moments the valley forges of our individual and national careers. It is in the meeting of such moments that are born new insights new sympathies new powers new skills that is precisely why the wisdom of the few instead of the many fails to build an enduring government or an enduring people such battles as we are in the midst of today cannot be won by any single stroke by any one strategy sprung from the mind of any single genius The necessary multitude of individuals and group adjustments to new conditions is altogether too vast and too complex for that. Rather, we must pin our faith upon the inventiveness, the resourcefulness, the initiative of every one of us. That cannot fail us if only we keep the faith in ourselves and our future and in the constant growth of our intelligence and ability to cooperate with one another." Sirens still sing the song of the easy way for the moment of difficulty, but the common sense of the common man, the inherited tradition of an independent and self-reliant race, the historical memory of Americans who glory in Valley Forge even as they glory in Yorktown, all these tell us the truth for which our ancestors fought and suffered, the truth which echoes upward from the soil of blood and tears, that the way to the nation's greatness is the path of self-reliance, independence, and steadfastness in times of trial and stress. Valley Forge met such a challenge to steadfastness in times and terms of war. Our test is to meet this challenge in times and terms of peace. It is the same challenge. It is the same test of steadfastness of will, of clarity of thought, of resolution of character, of fixity of purpose, of loyalty to ideals, and of unshaken conviction that they will prevail. We are enduring sufferings, and we are assailed by temptations. We, too, are writing a new chapter in American history. If we weaken, as Washington did not, we shall be writing the introduction to the decline of American character and the fall of American institutions— if we are firm and far-sighted, as were Washington and his men, we shall be writing the introduction to a yet more glorious epic in our nation's progress. We have seen many precious fruits of the sturdy, pioneering virtues that have made our country first free and then strong and now proudly in the forefront of the world. If by the grace of God we stand steadfast in our great traditions through this time of stress, We shall ensure that we and our sons and daughters shall see these fruits increased many-fold. Valley Forge has come indeed to be a symbol in American life. It is more than the name for a place, more than the scene of a military episode, more than just a critical event in history. Freedom was won here by fortitude, not by the flash of the sword. Valley Forge is our American synonym for the trial of human character through privation and suffering, and it is the symbol of the triumph of the American soul. If those few thousand men endured that long winter of privation and suffering, humiliated by the despair of their countrymen, and deprived of support save their own indomitable will, yet held their countrymen to the faith, and by that holding, held fast the freedom of America, what right have we to be of little faith god grant that we may prove worthy of george washington and his men of valley forge back to me the orphan hoover the engineer who had achieved far more in private life than almost anybody who has run for president before or since called upon Americans to soldier through the economic crisis of their lives as if they were Washington's army at Valley Forge. Inspiring as that imagery might be to people as determined, combative, stoic, and deeply patriotic as Hoover. The American people had already been suffering for almost three years and were in no mood to be told that they should be inspired by ragged, half-starved, frostbitten soldiers of yore. It hit too close to home. Eighteen months later, Franklin Delano Roosevelt playing Happy Days Are Here Again would absolutely crush Hoover in the presidential election of 1932 and usher in an era of Democratic majorities in Congress that would last almost unbroken for 60 years. As promised, here's a short clip of Hoover himself speaking to a partisan crowd just four days before he would lose the election. You get a sense of his voice this way. My fellow citizens, from the congressional elections in 1930 down to the present moment, the strategy of the Democratic Party has been an effort to implant in the unthinking mind through deliberate misrepresentation the colossal falsehoods That the Republican Party is responsible for this worldwide catastrophe. Notwithstanding his legacy as a bottom 10 president, Hoover was the greatest American technocrat administrator, at least until World War II, showing how sheer administrative competence and unremitting determination and work could accomplish astonishing things in both the private and public sectors. It's that we could use a man like he, again. Just not in the presidency. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it. And that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Please write us a nice review on Apple, that really helps. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app to stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode. You can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can find that Googling around and stuff. This is a labor of love, and your support's very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.